So I'd like to start this evening with a poem. It's called Such Singing in the Wild Branches. <clears throat> it's from Mary Oliver. And it's about thrushes, which haven't yet, as far as I know, migrated back yet, but they will be here soon and they'll be gracing this land with their beautiful song. It was spring, and finally I heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers, all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness, and that's when it happened. When I seemed to float, to be myself a wing or a tree, and I began to understand what the bird was saying. And the sands in the glass stopped for a pure white moment while gravity sprinkled upward like rain, rising. And in fact, it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure, but it seemed not a single thrush but himself and all his brothers. And also the trees around them, as well as the gliding long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky, all, all of them, was singing, and of course so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that is true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your own, own soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. So I read that poem. It's one of my favorite Mary Oliver poems, in which I have many favorite Mary Oliver poems, because <laughs> she has so many good poems. But she's pointing to that moment when we lose ourselves, when we forget ourselves, when we become so immersed in an experience that we, as it were, disappear. We become one with the song, the thrush, the bird, the leaf, the flower, the sun, the sky, whatever it is that we are immersed in. And we have those, one that she calls those magical moments that wise people talk about that mystics point to and sages and prophets and poets speak about that moment of losing oneself, self-forgetting. This beautiful line in, an, in a Ute prayer, in the Ute people's prayer that says, um, uh, Earth teach me to forget myself like melted snow forgets its life. To be one with things like that, to forget oneself. So we all have these moments at times, maybe in meditation, maybe in nature, maybe listening to beautiful flute music uh, in moments of artistic creativity and passion and absorption into something where we um, are temporarily suspended from the grip of ourselves our stories, our projects, our obsessions, our thoughts, our fantasies, our self-preoccupation. And um, we often crave those moments. We often will fly around the world for one of those moments or sit up the hill for a th two-month meditation retreat for one of those moments or schlep out the spirit rock from Oakland for one of those moments, or whatever it is that you do, we, we will orient ourselves to that moment which we might not even know what it is. We might not even know how to describe it because it's often beyond words, beyond concepts, beyond our rational understanding. But we have some intuitive knowing that it's possible, that it's real, that it's valuable, that it's precious, that it's transformative and mysterious. And it sometimes feels like a doorway to the sacred, to the mystery, to the vastness, to wonder, to love, to heart opening, to 
many, many different avenues and possibilities. And it's also very central in spiritual practice and spiritual traditions, and many different traditions speak about it in different ways. So in the Buddhist world, these, 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 there's also many ways in, in, in Buddhist teaching to refer to this. But the um, understanding of selflessness, of egolessness, where we're no longer caught in the grip of the tirade of our thinking about ourselves and our self-preoccupation. So I wanted to talk about the self and selflessness tonight. We'll see how far I get. This is a big topic because we have such big selves. <laughs> because we live in this self-obsessed, self-dominated, self-help, self-self-self culture. We're helping ourselves to forget ourselves, but we get so caught in helping ourselves that we build ourselves up that it becomes monumental and we don't know what to do with it. So we keep perfecting it. We keep perfecting the personality. It's not a bad thing to do. It doesn't necessarily bring freedom and awakening and peace that we're looking for. It can help you know, refine and uh, develop ourselves in, in, in many good ways, but it doesn't bring the liberation and the peace that we're really seeking. Because as we know, the self-help project is endless, right? How many, I went through my, I went through my bookshelves recently. <laughs> Always a dangerous task. And this is this stacks of books on, you know, self-help and fixing this and growing that and developing this and cultivating that and letting go of that. And it's exhausting. <laughs> so they all went to goodwill. <laughs> Enough, I'm tired of all that. Half of them were unread, I have to admit. <laughs> Makes you feel good, though, when you buy them. You feel like you're going to do some of the work. <laughs> and then the house first, first strangely felt really light and spacious. <laughs> so maybe I'll write a book on freeing yourself from self-help books. <laughs> Ten steps to freeing yourself from self-help. So I, I spent the day teaching about this theme yesterday. It was a wonderful day, and it was very rich and, and um, fruitful and you know, stimulating for, for many of us. And, um, you know, it was just left with that sense of that paradox that we do live in, this, this culture where the self is, whatever we take the self to be, is rewarded and um, often or, you know, we have a, you know, we apply for a job, you know, we have a long curriculum vitae, or, you know, there, needs to, there, there seems like there's a lot of need to promote ourselves, you know, whatever your line of profession, you know, and I hear this from many friends, you know, I, I love being an artist, and I love being a meditation teacher, I love being a therapist, or whatever it is, but promoting myself, you know, and putting a website up, and, and, putting myself out there, and, and yet it's one of the things that's often necessary to create a business, you know, and yet it's, it's a sort of funny paradox, you know, how does a spiritual teacher that's, that's teaching about selflessness, you know, promote themselves? <laughs> so we, we, you know, one of the, one of the, so one of the, the issues with this teaching is it is a paradoxical teaching. You know, we do have a relative self and, and, and what the self points to, you know, body, a mind, a personality, a history, right? It's not that we don't exist, and this teaching isn't saying we don't exist. <coughs> but it's saying, look how we construct this idea, this notion, this sense of self. 
Look how we create it in our minds with our thoughts and images and projections into the future, history, and self-promotion. And the reason we talk about this at all, you know, some people say, why do you talk about this? It just confuses me. It doesn't make any sense. What do you mean there's no self? Which is not actually what the teachings say. Nobody said there was no self. It's just a misinterpretation. Um, But the teachings do say, look at how we construct the sense of self. Look how we imprison ourselves with an identity and an image and a personality and attachment to all these ideas about ourselves, these notions about ourselves, because they, those constructions, those concepts, those ideas, those images, that habit of self-referencing, that is what we need to pay attention to, because that, um, as you probably know from looking at your experience, is problematic, is a cause for a lot of suffering. Think of all the times that your self-image has taken a blow, or how much effort you've put into propping up your self-image, making yourself look good, you know, and presenting in a certain way, and all the effort that takes to present oneself as one thinks one is or one should be in the world or in a family or at work, right? And of course, we will have multiple, you know, complex lives, and so we have different self-images we're promoting in different places, you know. How do you present yourself here on a Monday night at Spirit Rock versus Monday morning at the office, you know, or Friday night at the bar, you know, or Sunday with the, you know, playing soccer with the kids? Is it a different self-sense, self-image, self-identity that's being developed or promoted or presented or refined or... And what is that, what is that like? What, what is that self-image? What is that identity? What is that self-sense, self-referencing? You know, that self-consciousness. When you walk in the room and you spill your cup of tea, you know, and everyone's been practicing mindfulness and you're the only one who spills your cup of tea on the floor, which you're not supposed to bring tea in the room. What, what it, we, 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 when, we, when we trip up like that, you know, which we do all the time, you know, um, trip over in the street, you know, and that the intense self-consciousness comes and that sense of, oh, my God, I'm being seen to be a fool, and, you know, messing up in some way. Or what is that process, that selfing process? You know, all that's happened is you stumbled on the carpet and you fell on the floor. Your body tripped. But, you know, that's not just what happens, right? We create a whole story of what did they think? And, oh, my God, did someone else saw me? And, no. I'm getting good feedback here. And I was driving, and I went to Tahoe the other day for a skiing, a skiing day trip. And um, I had this beaten up old BMW and um, shouldn't really drive to Tahoe with it because it's not very so reliable, but anyhow, I did. And um, it was fine. It was a dry day and uh, went between storms. And then just as I turned off to get to this uh, ski resort, it was a little less dry and a little snowy and icy. And so I did a 180 skid and slammed into the bank. And, um, and then a series of other cars came around the corner and proceeded to almost slam into me and the bank and we were all dancing around and <laughs> um, and it was just interesting to see what the mind made of that you know all that happened was in the car lost control and slid into the bank you know and I could have gone into a lot of hell realms about how come I didn't know that and why didn't I put my chains on I should have bought a different car and yada 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 and I'm a mindfulness teacher and now you lost mindfulness and you hit the bank and what are they going to say at Spirit Rock when you tell them don't tell them keep it a secret (laughs) too late now you've blown it the cat's out the bag the car went out of control and hit the bank end of story 
or we could create lots of other stories about it. So I'm going to read something from Stephen Batchelor, who's a great Buddhist writer, who speaks to the paradox of this teaching on what the Buddha called anatta, not-self, which is different than no-self, not-self. Self-consciousness is at once the most obvious and central fact of my life and the most elusive. If I search for myself in meditation, I find it is like trying to catch my own shadow. I reach for it, but there's nothing there. Then it, then it reappears elsewhere. I glimpse it from the corner of my mind's eye, turn to face it, and it's gone. Each time I think I pinned it down, it turns out to be something else, a bodily sensation, a mood, a feeling, a perception, an impulse, or simply awareness itself. I cannot find the self by pointing my finger at any physical or mental trait and saying, yep, that's me. For such traits come and go, whereas the sense of I remains constant. But neither can I put my finger on something other than these traits, however however ephemeral and contingent they may be, they nonetheless define me. The self may not be something, but neither is it nothing. It is simply ungraspable and unfindable. I am who I am, not because of an essential self hidden away in the core of my being, but because of the unprecedented and unrepeatable matrix of conditions that have formed me. The more I delve into the mystery of who I am, the more I just keep going. There is no end to it. I am who I am, not because of an essential self hidden away in the core of my being, usually we think it's here somewhere or here, but because of the unprecedented and unrepeatable matrix of conditions that have formed me. So what's so beautiful about this, this, this piece is that he's pointing to the fact that each one of us is a unique expression of life, of humanity. Right? We each have our unique, personal, individual histories, conditionings, qualities, gifts, challenges. And yet when we look to find who that is or where that is, if we, pay, if we turn the attention with this meditative awareness, where is it? Where is this me that I so know to be who I am Yet when I look for the evidence, it's not so findable. So this is one of the great meditative questions and dilemmas. What is this mystery that I call me, myself, I? So one of the the purposes of this teaching is to turn your questioning inquiring mind towards this topic, towards this theme, towards this reality. Not to come up with an answer saying, okay, now I found it. You know, it's not there. Well, so we can just go into something else, you know, have a cup of tea. Or to say, no, that's it. But to keep looking. Because the answer isn't a yes, no, here, there answer. The, the point of the question is to live the question to live the looking, to live the inquiry, to live the curiosity. What is this mystery called myself? And because we're always changing, always unfolding, it's an always changing answer or reality. So the photos that you look at when you go home or you go to your parents or wherever you keep your stock house of photos, you know, from when you were two and five and ten and twenty and thirty and fifty or whatever, how old you are. Is that you? Is that the same you? The person who woke up this morning feeling, oh God, it's Monday. (laughs) God. The work week begins. 
or the, the person who got up like, yes, great, it's Monday, I have a day off today, or it's Spirit Rock tonight, yippee-doo. <laughs> and you get to work and say, oh, God, I've got eight more hours of this, oh, no, I hate work. And then you meet a friend for lunch, and you're all excited and happy and joyous, and you're loving being alive, and you get back to work. It's like, oh, God, I'm going to work again. I hate my boss. All these different selves that we reincarnate in, right? Is that the same person? That's the, the whole perception changes when we're, we're in the grip of these feelings and thoughts and situations and realities and relationships. So, here's something from the Jewish tradition. One day a rabbi, in a frenzy of religious passion, rushed in before the ark, fell to his knees, and started beating his breast, crying, I'm nobody! I'm nobody! The cantor of the synagogue, impressed by the example of spiritual humility, joined the rabbi on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody, <laughs> probably with a more you know, rhythmical, poetic voice. And the custodian, watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two on his knees, calling out, I am too nobody, I too am nobody. At which point, the rabbi, nudging the cantor with his elbow, pointed at the custodian and said, look who thinks he's nobody. So we can take pride in our nobodiness, in our somebodiness, in our specialness, in our not specialness. These are all positions, they're all views, they're all perceptions, they're all identities. They're all, you know, and, and any position is um, temporary, it's conditioned, it's relative, subjective, transient. And anything that's any of those is not so reliable, not so dependable. And a possible source for suffering if we cling to it, because if we cling to it and it changes, what happens? We suffer. And guess what? It all changes. So this is from the Buddha, um, who's speaking to this point that whatever position we take, whatever reference point, it's a view, it's a perception, it's a, it's a stance. And the point is to see through the relative subjective limited nature of all views that we have about ourselves, about anything, really. So this is the Buddha, and this is in, within quotation marks. I have a self. I don't have a self. It is precisely because I have a self that I can see a self. It is precisely because I have a self that I can see I don't have a self. It is precisely by means of not-self that I perceive self. Or this very self of mine the knower that is sensitive here and there is the self that is constant, changing, and everlasting, and eternal, not subject to change, and will endure as long as eternity. End of quotation marks. This, he says, is called a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a writhing of views, a fetter of views. He's not so big on these kind of views. <laughs> Bound by these views, the uninstructed, unwise person is not freed from sorrow, from suffering, distress, stress. He is not free, I tell you. To be bound by these views, these concepts, whether we take the position of self, not self, in between, they're all views. So where does that leave us? It kind of leaves us in don't know mind, don't know don't know. Who am I? The Zen teacher Sang Sanim, his answer to every question was, don't know, don't know, don't know. Not that he didn't know, but he was pointing to the don't know mind, the mind that doesn't take a position and fix and get stuck somewhere.
So yesterday I quoted a few times from Mark Twain. Mark Twain is always ever wittily um, pointing to our, this, our existential situation as a human being. He says, biographies are but the clothes and buttons of the man. The biography of the person cannot be written. And we do not deal much in facts when we are contemplating ourselves. So, um, once upon a time, there was a teacher called the Buddha, who you might have heard about. And um, he had uh, a student who came to ask him some questions, as was often the way. There was a lot of it. It was a bit like the, the time of the Buddha was like, was like the Bay Area. Like all these teachings, all these centers, all these teachers, all these different spiritual views, and lots of people going around going, well, you know, these folks say this, you know, and the Tibetans over here say that, and then, you know, the Hindus say this, but what do you say over here, you Theravadans? And, you know, and how do we make sense of all these different views? And so the Buddha was, was in that, he was on the circuit, <laughs> the spiritual circuit, and people would go and check him out and quiz him and get into debate. And so one young uh, seeker, Bachagota, came to him and... Uh, heard about this teaching of the Buddhist on, on not-self, and, and, and so he asked the Buddhist, uh, so is, in your teaching, is there, is there a self, as there is in, the, in the, the Vedas and the Upanishads of the Hindu tradition? And the Buddha didn't say anything. And the man said, well, does that mean there's not a self? And again, the Buddha remained silent. And the seeker got fed up and frustrated and just walked off, as often happens. And because um, there was a desire to get into some debate, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of emphasis on philosophical debate in that in that in that time. And Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, said, "You know, how come he didn't say anything? You know, I teach about this all the time. You know, you could have you know set him straight." And the Buddha said. If I'd said there is a self, it would have, he would have taken on that view. If I'd said there wasn't a self, he would have taken on that view. And either position leads to is problematic. Why, why engage in, 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 why support somebody getting more fixed on their points of view, their attachment to their view? The point is to understand this in an experiential reality not to just have some my philosophical idea about it, because that doesn't really help us. We have to have the direct experience. So, this is from, the answer is from the New Yorker cartoon strip. So I'm sure many of you have seen this. There's a picture of a couple watching telly, TV, and um, the, on the, the announcement from the TV from the from the new reality show. This week on the amazing race to enlightenment, Jim and Susie achieve right mindfulness, <laughs> and will Bob and Candy be eliminated for relentless clinging to the self? laugh, it'll be happening soon. <laughs> Spirit Rock Reality TV. <laughs> Jim in his second intensive retreat meditation, <laughs> six in the morning. God forbid. So I can see I'm not going to get very far in my, in my talk this evening. So one of my favorite pieces of research that was reported, there's a lot of research now, as you know, being done on the brain and meditation and mindfulness and uh, sort of mapping out a lot of the things that meditators have known for millennia, but you know, 
understanding it neurologically and psychologically and with MRIs and all that. Anyhow, there was some piece of research done, quite extensive, um, trying to understand the uh, the self, trying to find the self in the brain. Like, where 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 are we? In, in the, if we exist, we must be somewhere in the brain, right? There's some, there must be some controller somewhere in the coconut up here that's deciding and choosing and um, you know, because it feels like that, right? It feels like I'm here and maybe I'm my thoughts or I'm my body and I just choose my reality, I decide my reality. So Time Magazine ran this great uh, synopsis of the research that's been done on the brain over many years and they said, after more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have long since concluded that there is no conceivable place for a self to be located in the physical brain and that it simply doesn't exist. <laughs> Shock, horror. <laughs> you think this would freak out the nation? Time magazine, just, you know, stop press. There is no self in the brain. Maybe it's in your left toe. So, um, one of the easiest doorways into this teaching is to is to understand it through the changing nature of our experience, the changing nature of identity, the changing nature of our personality. So if you think about, take last week for an example, you know, all the different selves you took birth in last week or today, you know, like I mentioned at work or at lunch or, or this weekend, you know, TGI Friday, you know, happy, relieved, exhausted, wiped out, Saturday morning, take birth in another kind of reality. Perhaps you're now, you're not the, the boss or the supervisor or the teacher, but you're the parent or you're the, the partner or you're the sibling or child of sick parents. Or Sunday morning it's you know, soccer practice with the kids or something. And we take all these different realms and, and realities and identities that we move through in our days, in our lives. We can see it in the context of a single meditation. You, know, you arrive here, so the meditation is today, half an hour, 40 minutes, whatever it was. You come in from day at work and driving and you take your seat and, okay, now I'm the meditator. Now I'm the Buddhist yogi. Now I'm the one who knows how to meditate. Now I'm the one who can't meditate. Now I'm the one who doesn't have a clue what he's doing. I hope that guy there says something because I'm completely lost and confused. I can't even find my breath, never mind stick with it. I can't even find my body. What do you mean body? Feel your body. What body? And then... So we have the raw sense data of our experience, you know, the sitting, breathing, sounds. And then we have our stories and our interpretations of what's happening. And we can see in the space of a single meditation how we construct this idea of now I'm meditating, now I'm the meditator, now I'm doing something, I am meditating. I am the one who's breathing. You know, breathing's been happening quite happily for the last, you know, billion breaths, and now I am the one who's breathing. Where did that come from? So and then we, you know, perhaps we settle into the meditation, and for whatever good 
luck, you know, maybe we had a good cup of tea before the set, but we suddenly find ourselves very <coughs> concentrated and quiet and almost feeling blissful, rapturous, absorbed, content. And, you know, we rarely leave an experience as it is. There's always some interpretation like, now I'm getting somewhere. Now I really know what I'm doing. Now I'm a really good meditator. I wish everybody could see how good this is. <laughs> Wait till I tell my friends at home. I was so concentrated. So I tell a story of a, uh, a meditator student on a retreat in India who was having that experience. He was on retreat. He was very ardent young man and uh, was having a great time on the retreat, loving being there. Meditation was going really well, a lot of concentration, a lot of focus, a lot of mindfulness, a lot of bliss, a lot of devotion and inspiration. And, and he got so excited by all of that that he thought, well, you know, when this retreat's over, I'm going to, you know, go to Burma, you know, get ordained as a monk, you know, maybe if I do this for five or ten years, I'll really, you know, crack it, you know, and maybe live in a cave, and, you know, so he had this whole, this glowing identity of him, you know, just radiating out, you know, on top of the Himalaya somewhere, the meditator. And then, of course, he got so excited by all those fantasies about how great it will be to be in Burma for ten years, you know, meditate and become enlightened and come home and with lots of money as a guru or whatever the story was, um, he got so agitated that his meditation went to ruin. You know, he got so agitated and just a lot of thinking and distraction. And by the end of the day, he was so fed up with his inability to concentrate, he wanted to leave the retreat. <laughs> so he went from being a monk and getting enlightened in Burma and to leaving the retreat in the space of one day. And this is a good example of how we, you know, we take birth in this, in these identities, these stories that we wrap around ourselves and our experience. And if we don't see them, and this is the key point, if we don't see those stories, we will we'll always be creating those stories. Ideas, fantasies, projections. They're happening all the time. It's what we do with them. It's what we do with anything that's important. It's how we relate to them. It's whether we can hold them, include them within mindfulness and awareness with a little, little humor, a little spaciousness, a little non-identification, or whether we're in the grip of them and we act them out in the moment and we get caught in all these minds, tailspins and whirls and, of course, creates a lot of suffering. Anybody notice doing that in meditation? Anybody running with how good it is or how bad it is. Or, yeah, it's very common. So the beautiful thing about mindfulness practice is that we can begin to uh, develop some awareness and spaciousness and capacity to be more clear about what's happening in our experience, including this particular layer of our experiencing of how we construct a sense of self, how we construct an identity, how we think about and imagine and build and, and this edifice of me. So as I said, the, 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 one of the doorways into this, this teaching is to see the changing nature of it. How it's always evolving, changing, shifting. And just as that poem was pointing to with Mary Oliver, there are times when this self, what, what, what in the tradition is called I-making or my-making, uh, fades, stops. For a moment, some moments, if you're lucky, some hours, maybe some days. And what happens when, when, that, when that 
busyness has stopped. It's peaceful. It's quiet. It's spacious. It's simple. It's like decluttering your house. There's just what's happening in the moment. The Buddha said, which is your true self, the self of yesterday, that of today, or that of tomorrow? Which one's true? Are they all true? Are none of them true? So a couple of pointers to leave you with, and um, we're going to have to review, return to this subject, I'm afraid. So, as I often mention, you know, I spend a lot of time outdoors in nature, and that's why I do a lot of my practice, partly because I find that being outdoors is such a great (coughs) mirror for practice and ourselves, also because it's beautiful. But also because the the, the natural world isn't selfing in the same way that human beings are always creating selves, right? And we often go out into nature for the very fact, we don't know it consciously, that we're going into an environment that's not so full of egos and me and mine and being special and all of the stuff that we create in this, in this self-making. So we walk into the woods here, you know, go by to the ocean or you know, in the meadows and the grasses and the creeks and the streams. And the sense of self that we, that we carry, that, we, that gets stimulated when we're in relationship with people and, and, our, and our environment, uh, work, home environment, starts to become less important. We start to just feel the presence of the trees and the, the light and the land, and the birds, as Mary Oliver was saying. And at some point, we sort of forget ourselves. We do become like melted snow for a moment. We're just watching the deer walk across the trail or some wacky turkeys up the hill. Or, you know, yesterday I saw this foot-long worm just zigzagging its way across the path, you know, or some sparrowhawk that just suspended miraculously in midair in in the same place. And we forget ourselves, and it's delightful. And then at some point, some feedback comes on the, on the sound system, <laughs> and that perfect world is shattered. And you go, God, what's up with that? I was having such a good time. Why isn't that fixed yet already? You know? Or as today, I took a hike and um, you know, was just enjoying the sort of misty, just the muted colors today, the grays and the purples. and and um, sort of losing myself pleasantly so. Such a relief to lose oneself, to forget oneself. And then this horde of people, those mountain bikers and dog walkers and people having very loud animated conversations that I wasn't particularly excited about hearing. Um, And the sense of self coalesced, that sense of, oh no, it's going to ruin this this moment of quietude, of whatever, stillness, beauty. Who are these non-nature elements walking up the path? (laughs) And the sense of self comes, coalesces, and and what happens in that experience? It feels tight, it feels contracted, it feels smaller, it feels separate, it feels antagonistic towards, it feels it's not peaceful. That sense of self in that moment is not peaceful. It's not pleasurable. It's experienced as a contraction. And then miracles happen. They all fade away. And that peace returns. Or that spaciousness, that non-self-referencing returns. And and so we see, oh, we see how that comes and goes like an accordion. So, So... I don't know when I'm coming back here next, probably in um, three weeks. So pay attention to this, this 
changing nature, this changing self-sense, self-identity, self-image. Notice how it comes into being, sticks around. Notice how what happens in your experience, in your body. Notice how you perceive the world differently when you're caught up in the sense of me, and I've got to get the front of the line, and there's too much traffic in my way, and why are all these people here at Spirit Rock? I like it when it's quiet. You know. What happens when we're caught in that self-identity, whatever that is? So the other place that I like to people to pay attention to, or two other places, um, one is the moment that you wake up. So the moment we wake up, usually, in my experience, there's some moments before the self-making process kicks into gear, before the, the I and the ego functioning starts revving up, before the to-do list, before all the, the worries of the day and the plans of the day and the hopes for the day and the projects for the day. You wake up, you know, if you're lucky, without the alarm, and you just, you know, in this sort of quiet, stupor, sort of dazed, kind of mellow. And you have the, the, the sense of oneself and the day hasn't quite formed yet. And there's a certain peacefulness to it if we pay attention. Sometimes, sometimes we wake up and it's right there, that sense of anxiety and got to get on and got to get up and da-da-da-da. Or some five-year-old is already just jumping on your bed and it's too late, you know, it's, it's a different reality. But there's times when that's not happening. Notice what happens when the, the, from the moment of peace of, you could say, no-thingness, emptiness, quietude, and then suddenly, did I call so-and-so yesterday? Oh, God, they've already gone to work. It's 8 o'clock. I can't believe it. Oh, no. And I've got a meeting at 9. And oh. and then suddenly that spaciousness has suddenly shrank to me, my, my projects. And you know, there's a place for that. You know, it allows us to function in the world. But just to notice that constriction. And what I'm playing with these days is yeah, I, used to, I used to be the kind of person that wakes up and jumps out of bed. And I just play with this sense of seeing how that that selfing process contracts and then seeing if, if, if there can be some relaxation. Because we don't necessarily, what we get seduced into thinking we need that sort of revved up, okay, let's get on with the day to function. And yet actually we can function quite well in a very relaxed, open, spacious way. We don't need to be so tight and revved up and so full of ourselves to do something like make the coffee. We can go upstairs and put the kettle on and make the tea, and it all happens by itself, in a way. And lastly, to um, pay attention to the moments when, when the, the mind, the thoughts, the selfing, however you understand that to be, when those moments are particularly quiet, Whatever moments in the day, you know, I've alluded to some in nature, reading, music, lying in bed, absorbed in something, and you forget about yourself. Pay attention, see if you can bring, pay, bring your attention to that without it re-instigating a sense of self. Maybe it will, and that's okay. You know. Freedom allows self and not self to be here. We don't have to make a problem out of this self-making process, the self-thing, the ideas, the identity, the image. We just need to see it. See it arise, see it for what it is. It's a bunch of thoughts, it's constructs, it's ideas, it's images. It starts happening at about six to nine months in an infant, and it gets developed and deepened over time. Doesn't, it's not there when we're born. When we're born, we're not in that place. We're in a more merged, oceanic, non-separate place. It's what we long for. So 
So I'll close with a poem from, um, from Wendell Berry, who, again, speaks to touching this in nature. Wendell Berry is a poet and farmer and activist. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and where the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. So what I love about this poem is this line, you know, that we, we, we do, we, all, we often wake up either in, our li- in the day or at night in fear of some future anticipated reality. And then he says, I come into the presence of things that don't tax their lives with forethought of grief. You know, we spend most of our lives in forethought about our own mortality, our own catastrophes that may never happen, but we live in them perennially. And when we let go of that, when we come into the presence of that which supports the letting go of that, we feel at peace. He says, I rest in the grace of the world. So we all have that opportunity. No matter how busy and chaotic and complex our lives, obviously things like meditation and silence and nature and stillness support that. So, so pay attention to this in your day, in your meditation, as you're sitting on the bus, as you're driving, as you're showering. Notice how you're constructing a sense of self, sense of identity, sense of me, sense of self-image. And notice when, when you can just say, oh, I don't need to be doing that. I can put that down. I can just be showering. I can just be eating my croissant. I can just be walking down the street to catch the bus. And it's not even me walking down the street. There's just walkings happening. It's happening by itself. The left leg knows what to do after the right leg has placed it on the ground. It just does it by itself. What a miracle. Okay. Thank you for listening. (laughs) So um, have a lovely week. Uh, Next week, um, uh, Kevin Griffin will be here. And um, no dinner. Sorry to say, so eat at home. <laughs> Want to diet here at Spirit Rock? <laughs> no, it's just because the month retreat is on. And um, please drive right as you leave Spirit Rock and stack your chairs over there and be grateful for the beautiful lives that you have. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.